0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. We're going to be doing something different on today's episode, an important new podcast from our network district productive in partnership with the bipartisan organization Keep Our Republic, debuted this week. It's called Unconventional Threat, and it chronicles the very challenges to the integrity of our democracy that we are facing in these turbulent times, I would say in these few weeks coming up. You can find Unconventional Threat Podcast on your favorite podcast app, or you can go to unconventionalthreat.com to listen there. You will hear from an all-star cast of policy and security analysts who are warning us of unprecedented attacks on our country's electoral system. You'll hear exclusive interviews with people like former United States Secretary of Homeland Security Michael Chertoff, Senior Vice President of the Chair for Strategic and International Studies, Heather Conley, Chair of the House Committee on Rules, Representative Jim McGovern, and ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob Menendez. So, I sat down with hosts Jonathan Weiner and Peter Eisner to talk about our new initiative, Lawyers and Collars. Lawyers and Collars brings together faith leaders, clergy in particular. The collars are the clergy, with lawyers in partnership at polling places all across nine key states, battleground states, polling places that will be under attack from voter suppression and intimidation. These places have been before, and they likely will again. So we are issuing what I would call in my tradition an altar call for clergy, interfaith clergy, to come out as chaplains at polls to protect black votes. Literally, there are people trying to steal this election by suppressing or intimidating black voters. That's what they're doing. That's the plan, and our plan is to be there, is to show up. And be there as clergy and lawyers and all kinds of volunteers to protect black votes in this election. So go to lawyersandcollars.org, lawyersandcollars.org, and hear that altar call. If I could just share with you something that happened to me just this week that was very... uh, Uh, Well, it it told me a lot about what's happening around the country. I'm just watching the news, and I'm seeing lines, long lines, of early voters in Texas and Georgia, and I'm seeing how they have cut down the polling places in those states to reduce voting. So I just did a tweet on the couch watching the news. It said this, the white Republican governors of Texas and Georgia are trying to suppress The early vote by cutting polling places, but the lines keep growing with record turnouts, reminds me of the first free election in South Africa. I just did that tweet. I checked on 20 minutes later, and there were already 1,000 likes. Now there are 40,000 likes and 10,000 retweets. That's never happened to any of my tweets before, which means something is out there. People are standing up. People are getting ready against voter suppression and intimidation. We aren't going away. We aren't staying home. We're standing up. We're showing up. So I'm calling clergy of all faiths to stand up and show up. So if you want to be part of that or learn more about it, go to lawyersandcollars.org. Here now is my conversation with Peter Eisner and Jonathan Weiner, which I really enjoyed, from the Unconventional Threat podcast.
1: Jim, I think that, that one of the things that interested me has, has been to, to discuss evangelicalism in, in, in general. Um, it's too often that folks around the country get one idea of who, who evangelicals are and what the evangelical movement is. This became clear to me when I was writing a book uh, about Mike Pence in, in which one found that there are various factions, that there are not just a group of very political right wing evangelicals and then everyone else. There's, there, there are people that are not at all politicized. And there are also people that, that, that advocate social justice and other issues and identify themselves as progressives, but are evangelicals at the same time. Can you speak to that?
0: There was a phone call after the 2016 election, a conference call with a number of evangelical leaders. And one of the white evangelical leaders said, well, we didn't vote for his racial bigotry, but for other moral issues. And then a black evangelical woman said this, so racial bigotry isn't a deal breaker for you, I guess, right? And that ended the phone call. So when the media says evangelicals, they always should say white evangelicals because most, most black churches are theologically evangelical. They wouldn't use that term because it's not tainted with all the white evangelical right-wing politics. But in terms of the theology, it's very biblical. It's very Jesus-centered. Uh, and I'll, I'll go with the definition of evangelical that Jesus gave himself at the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth, uh, I call it his Nazareth manifesto. He's quoting Isaiah, and he says, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release the captives, and let the oppressed go free." That's Jesus' definition of evangelical. So any any gospel that isn't good news to the poor and the captives and the oppressed, whatever it might be, isn't the gospel of Jesus. So basically in the phrase white evangelical in this country, the word that defines the phrase isn't evangelical. Uh, it's white. And so all over the world in what we call the body of Christ, evangelicals of color are rising up to lead. But here it's controlled, I, I think, by both the religious right, but also a secular left media who really kind of likes to think that all evangelicals are crazy white right wing bigots. Uh, But, and many of them are. The real test in this election, a forum on race and politics uh, on Facebook Sunday night. And they're asking what's the issue? What's the most important issue to you? And I said, well, there's only one issue in this election. And I'll relate to that. The issue of white supremacy. That's the issue. And the biblical issue of that begins in Genesis when first chapter, first book of the Bible, it says in Genesis 1.26, and God created humankind in God's image and likeness. And so what I said to the North Carolina voting commissioner on the phone two weeks ago with the black bishop in Charlotte is this is a faith issue for us because every Every attempt to suppress a vote because of the color of one's skin is an assault against the image of God. You're throwing away Imago Day. So we're going to be here. We're going to be there at those polling places as chaplains, uh, as clergy. I call it lawyers and collars. Lawyers are going to be there to protect black votes, but so are clergy and collars. Moral authority with legal authority. Because this is a religious issue, not a political one. And it literally is an assault on the image of God. So what's on the ballot is faith, not just politics for us. And that goes right back to what it means to be a, uh, a person of faith, how the image of God is respected, affirmed, allowed to flourish, or how it's debased, dehumanized, and attacked. That's really what's at stake in this election.
2: Reverend Wallace, in your recent writing, You've said that racial fear and division is now a central campaign issue and strategy, and that the election would be a test of democracy and a test of faith. How do you think people who vote can put their faith into action by voting? And what can we do to bring the country back together to decrease fear and animosity and have us all be one people?
0: Well, on Sunday night, I said... Um every Christian who, uh, and I would, you know, Jews and, and Muslims also would share this basic conviction about the image of God. We're together on all of that. And that what the core of faith is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. No exceptions. That's what we all think. So I think every person of faith should ask every candidate running for office, top to bottom if they're if they are willing to condemn white supremacy or not. And every congregation should ask their pastor, priest, rabbi Iman, if they're willing to condemn white supremacy from the pulpit in the next three weeks. Because that's the spirituality of this election or the religiosity of this election. So Putting your faith in action means to vote in favor in support of the image of God and to vote against white supremacy. So white supremacy is is a lie, it's a myth, it's an idol, uh, it's a heresy. White supremacy is anti-God. So let's let's do theology here. And the test of faith will be whether or not the the operative word in describing who we are is is Christian or Jew or Muslim and not white uh, for people who are uh, of European ancestry. So th- that's the issue, uh, and this is really gonna gonna decide what kind of country we're going to be going forward. I mean, we're we're in we're in nine key states battleground states. We meeting lawyers and callers and turnout Sunday, and we're going to be in four cities in every state and then 15 polling places in all those states. And we're going to have clergy there uh, to protect black votes because they're trying to steal the election by suppressing black votes. That's their, it's a strategy. And I could detail in every state (laughs) what they're trying to do, but it's a strategy. And so spreading fear. And Jesus said uh, eight times, don't be afraid. And our politics says, be afraid all the time. So stoking, as you say, stoking uh, racial grievance and fear, hatred, and now violence. Now, Not only did the president refuse to condemn white supremacy, he gave a shout out, call out to white supremacists to be ready, stand ready. And so my home state of Michigan, I've seen what these white militia groups try to do to the governor. So this is really the faith issue at stake here. Uh, and it ties to immigration, white supremacy, to, to, to the environment, environmental justice. It ties to healthcare. It ties to all the issues that we, and COVID has verified everything I'm saying here. COVID showed the inequities in our society. It demonstrated, verified, documented. This isn't a philosophy. It's what's happening now. Who gets sick more and who dies more and what the conditions of their lives are. It's all clear. So, yeah, faith is—democracy is on the ballot, as many have said, but I think faith is on the
2: ballot, too. Reverend Wallace, in your book, Christ in Crisis, Reclaiming Jesus in a Time of Fear, Hate, and Violence, you suggest a path of spiritual healing uh, is needed to bring back Americans from the divisions they're facing, and you argue that Christians have become disconnected from Jesus and need to revisit their spiritual foundations by pointing to eight questions Jesus asked or is asked, you identify how they get there. Could you tell us a bit about the path of rec- reclaiming Jesus, the path of connecting uh, to the underlying values of Christianity?
0: Yeah, I often say don't go left, don't go right, go deeper. <laughs> and I think in in fact, it, it may be, could, could be, should be those sort of spiritual values that we have no matter what faith tradition we're in or or, or or maybe no faith at all. But the largest growing denomination in the country is the none of the aboves, the N-O-N-E-S, those who are rejecting faith altogether. But they're often doing it, not just because of what they see as judgmental, as, as excluding in religion, but also there's some higher values here, I mean, beyond themselves they're being called to. So I'd like to see faith values, which can be held by people of faith or people of no faith at all, bring us together beyond the ideological politics that divide us so deeply. And I think uh, Jesus either asked or prompted all these questions. And they're questions like, who is my neighbor? (laughs) What is the truth? Why be so afraid? Who is made in the image of God? All of these, these fundamental questions drive right to the heart even of our politics. And so I want to go back and listen to what Jesus said. And that's my tradition. Uh, but then I got kicked out of my my church, which my parents started in, in my teenage years and found my my world, my life in the movements, student move, movements of my time, but then came back to, uh, to my faith, really came back to this Jesus, which honestly wasn't preached about much in my church growing up. Uh, and the, the text that brought me back after uh, we had shut down Michigan State, my university, and we were in the middle of all that. And, and the text that brought me back was in Matthew uh, chapter 25. I call it the It Was Me text. And Jesus says, I was hungry. It was me. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, I was in those families that don't have enough to eat in America and that are hungers growing all over the world now. It was me. I was thirsty. I was that, you know, mother in Flint who couldn't get clean water because it was full of lead for her family. That that, that was me. I, I was naked, stripped of everything. I was in Guatemala, you know, take care of my family and couldn't grow any food on the land because of climate change. And then these gangs come on to get my boy in their army and, and threaten the gang rape, my daughter. if I don't give them what they want. So I packed up everything, stripped of everything, came to America where we could get asylum. I was told, and then I came and they took my kids away and put them in cages. That was me, says Jesus. Uh, I, was, I was sick, I didn't have healthcare or access to it. And so I was more vulnerable to COVID. I was, I was a stranger. The word stranger means immigrant there. That's the text, immigrant, refugee, and how you welcome them, Jesus, how uh, you welcome me. And then I was, I was in prison. So uh, I teach at Georgetown faith, uh, race and politics courses, 2020 this fall. And you know uh, the students are learning how white and black drug use is identical, but incarceration is overwhelmingly black and brown. They're reading Brian Stevenson and Michelle Alexander, and and you know that was me. I was racially incarcerated. So they all said, w- where, "Laura, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and naked and sick and stranger, and in prison?" And he said, "This text that changed my life." As you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Uh, as you've done to the least of these, so you marginalize and push what you've done to me. So the essence of our politics should be what happens to the least of these, the most vulnerable. How are they doing? The righteousness, the Hebrew prophets say, the righteousness of a society or its justice is how it treats the most vulnerable. That's, uh, Peter, as you know so well, that's the opposite of the priorities of Washington, D.C. The least of these are the least important, always. And that's even true, in, I think, sometimes in both parties. So how do we reverse that? And that's my big lesson from the politics of Jesus, how to reverse that and make the least of these the most important.
2: Recently, Pope Francis called for love without borders. And that was in response to COVID-19 spreading throughout the world. He says that a virus that does not recognize barriers, borders, or cultural or political distinctions must be faced with a love without barriers, borders, or distinctions. And part of what we're facing in this extraordinary year of 2020 is making it possible for everybody to vote and to have those votes counted and respected at a time of COVID by providing for their health and security and safety while they vote, and then making sure those votes are recognized. It's interesting to see a religious leader like Pope Francis talk about love without borders as being the response to an illness, a virus, a plague that has no borders.
0: Yeah, he's, um, he continues to. Uh, first, he just surprised me. Who, who, who would have thought that, I mean, the Roman Catholic Church was... Symbolic is symbolic of of uh, of you know the kind of religion that is so uh, structured and hierarchical and patriarchal that so many have turned away, particularly uh, women and others who don't feel included. And out of that rises this uh, this uh, this Latin American uh, cardinal who becomes Pope Francis. And he just brings us back to the gospel again and again and again. And so how do we understand, as he says, and Dr. King said, that we're all connected one way or the other. We're, gonna, we're all connected. So how that connection is played out is going to shape
2: the quality of all of our lives. You've said that faith leaders have three roles. To put our moral authority behind the doctors and scientists to main the discipline of physical distancing. To show how physical distancing must not lead to social isolation, and to focus on the most vulnerable, that those are the three roles that faith leaders should be performing for us in this time. Can you tell us a bit more about your thinking about faith leaders and COVID nineteen?
0: Well, let's let's apply those those three things to this election, which you were asking in your question. Uh, we have a we have a pandemic really a twin pandemic, a pandemic that made us all watching when we saw George Floyd killed uh, in eight, over eight minutes and 46 seconds, which focused on us on the last 401 years. And so a twin pandemics, the, the, the virus of this, this disease and the virus of uh, systematic racism. And so this twin pandemic now has an election coming. So we're we're working hard faith leaders uh, around the country, but in the battleground states in particular, uh, and people can check it out out at lawyersandcollars.org. And we're gonna try to, we're fighting and praying for free and fair and safe elections in the most vulnerable places where the most vulnerable people are gonna vote and, and their plans to interfere with and to intimidate and suppress those votes, they're systemic. And so we have a plan in all those states to, uh, to to stop that and to bring that that promise of a free and fair and safe election to us during COVID. And so this is something that is that we're the churches are and and we've just had a powerful connection with uh, many Jewish rabbis who are also doing this and joining. Together And so this is something that would be, you know, how to make that kind of election free and fair and safe during COVID because COVID is being used by all these people to try and disrupt and and not count the votes and not agree that they will accept a peaceful transition of power. So faith leaders, I think, have to put their moral authority on the line here and join with those who are willing to stand with them to... uh, to protect, I'll go back to, protect uh, the image of God in all of our citizens. And so this is really going to test what faith leaders say they believe about all these things. And my, my best calls, to be honest, Peter, these days, are calls with these faith leaders in each state. And they are ready, and they are organized, they are mobilized. Because they understand what I would quote from a scriptural text. Uh, Ephesians says, we we fight not just against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers, evil in high places. It talks about spiritual warfare. So I apply my spirituality and my politics in terms of seeing there are powerful, deep moral issues, choices to be made here. And so we have to be spiritually, I'm Called the clergy from Alabama last night. And uh, I heard their plans, amazing plans, uh, uh, fighting voter suppression in that state. You know the history of what's happening in Alabama goes back to the early 60s now. And, and they're ready. They're, they're prepared, spiritually ready for, for this, and they're going to protect that vote.
1: Yeah, I, I noticed last uh, in recent days, there have been long lines of people yeah. um, getting ready to vote in Alabama weeks before the election and uh an impressive an impressive show of of wanting to express themselves against all pressure to suppress and such absolutely or, absolutely i had well first of all uh, uh, one detail when you say that we are going to be out are you're saying is it sojourners or you say there's a, there's an alliance of of clergy that will be
0: yeah let me be clear uh turnout sunday and lawyers and callers that's where you find this uh and lawyers and callers. Uh, it isn't just sojourners. In fact, we we're partner partnering with with the National African American Clergy Network, Barbara Williams Skinner, and sojourners, and that network are partnering all over the country. And this this effort is being led by black clergy in all those states, and with allies, uh, white churches, multicultural churches, and now a number of 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 uh, synagogues are joining as well. So it's interfaith now, but we're joining all over the country, pulling together real chaplains, really chaplains to be at the polls uh, and to be law enforcement. As you know, Peter is even predicting some violence uh, up to this election time. So the chaplains will be trained in de-escalation and nonviolence and peacemaking before and during and after the, the election. So my our website, Sojourners, is sojo.net, S-O-J-O dot You can find it all there, too. But it really is, is a turnout Sunday, and lawyers and callers are the ways to find that.
1: Mm-hmm. One thing that also is very troubling these days is the efforts at creating litmus tests. And I found this in some of the, some of the writing that I've done, I, writing, writing about Mike Pence, one one finds that uh you're either with us or against us kind of attitude where where if someone dares to challenge a Mike Pence or somebody that's that's of the religious right they're d- declared immediately as an apostate there's like a, let, a litmus test that says well this person is is really doing this because they're attacking religion uh and it, it, it goes it goes into into the question then of of saying you know the, the the questions that start coming up well are you a Catholic are you not a Catholic there people are saying well Joe Biden is not really a Catholic and you know who's a Catholic who's not a Catholic based on 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 certain a certain test that some undis, nondescript person wants to describe it's very disturbing to to to, to see people questioning one another in terms of their faith?
0: Well, it's also, uh, Peter, as you point out, often selective issues uh, that are used as litmus tests. I, 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 there are 2,000 verses in the Bible, 2,000 verses about the poor, about the oppressed, about wealth and poverty. And I never see those verses lifted up by the religious right or the Mike Pence's of the world. They They focus on one or two issues that are there religious issues. What I'm saying in this election, that racism is a religious issue in this election. Racism is a religious issue that all people of faith have to deal with. So I want to see all those verses about the poor lifted up uh, and put into our political narrative and conversation. But I love the prophet Micah, who is is, uh, one of my favorites. And he he says, what does the Lord require? He says, do justice. I'm glad justice is first. Do justice. And then love kindness and walk humbly with your God. And I don't see a lot of that. Let's do justice first, always for those who are most vulnerable. But then let's be kind. Let's uh, love kindness and act kindly or mercifully. And then walk humbly None of us have all the answers here. We're trying to find our way into a whole new a bridge to a new America. We won't be anymore. By the 2040s, we won't be a mostly white majority. Nation will be a majority of minorities. That's a whole different, different country, which I'm looking forward to. But how do we navigate that? How do we find our way forward? And a whole new generation. I mean, my two boys, 17... 21. They have a different, a whole different view of this. They they see a future coming in their generation so different than what we've got now. And uh, Eddie Glaude, a wonderful author that, that uh, just did the Jimmy Baldwin book, talks about the third founding or the refounding of America. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at. And I think the faith community could be navigators, really good moral navigators for that Future, but we're not going back, we're going forward. And I think, um, old traditional definitions of religious issues being only one or two or three important questions, but they can be resolved
1: in better ways than the both extremes often do. What are some ways to bridge the gap? Because I I have this feeling that there are people on the religious right that and, and their adherents that respond to a, a kind of like a a fear that they have within them that they're that they're under attack that their way of life is under attack and and that there are there are heathens after them how does how does one calm that how does one take that away it's it doesn't it's not there but it, they they feel it and they and then it that it gains substance
0: it's interesting that that fear doesn't come from the religion they profess the fear comes from their Feeling uh, threatened by a cult as, as members of a culture, a white culture, a, a dominant white culture, and they're afraid they're going to lose their their power and their control. And religiously, you know what answers that is relationships. I, I was a little league coach for twenty two seasons, and my two boys, eleven years, and I often saw when dads too, but moms, when moms sit down to together and talk about. You know, their kids, their future, their kids, their hopes, their fears, their dreams, their things they're worried about. Uh, it's a very bonding thing, but it doesn't happen across racial lines in this country. By and large, 75% of white people have not one significant relationship of color or family person in their social circle. So we are, the people who are afraid are the ones who are most separated, most distanced, most alone, most on their own. And what changes mindsets and, and, and attitudes and hearts is relationship. That's what happens again and again. Even the memoirs of former white supremacists I've read or people I've talked to, what finally changes them is, is they get in relationship with people who are different than them. And this is what, you know, who is my neighbor? The question Jesus asked, you know, out of that came was a lawyer asking him the question Who is my neighbor? And I realize now in the text this is a Washington lawyer because I know that tone of voice. Who is my neighbor? And he's and, and the Good Samaritan parable is the one I use, which meant most people know. And the power power of that is not just stopping with the side of the road and helping somebody in trouble and taking your energy and time and money and all that, interrupting your schedule. That's all true. But the neighbor that Jesus lifts up is somebody who who was different than the person he he helped and our neighbor in the in the text there our neighbors are the people who are different than we are that's what the text means how do we understand that our neighbor you got to go outside your path to find your neighbor in the way jesus talks about that and that's the future what it means to love our neighbors no exception but people who are different than us and that's where i think the future is going and as long as we stay away from those people Then we have all the fears and caricatures and the caravan coming from the south and low-income housing coming into our suburbs. And all of that's racially coded about people that we don't know. And that's what the faith community can help do is bring people together in new kinds of conversations and relationships.
2: Um, You quoted Ephesians um, 6.12 for our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world. There are some other parts of Ephesians uh, which also are important as we think about this current election time and the divisions amongst us. There's Ephesians 4:2, which says, "Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love." There is Ephesians 4:32, "Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And there's Ephesians 4:29 do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And some of what we're going to have to do uh, after these elections is to speak that which is helpful for building others up uh, to benefit the whole country.
0: I didn't realize I was talking with an Ephesian scholar this morning, but you're so right. And indeed, those words take us beyond the the condemning politics or the cancel politics, we've got to get to that place of that that kind of what of that kindness that Micah talked about. I mentioned earlier. How do we find that kindness even with those who who are different than we are because of their different life experience? How do we have that? What does it mean for the kindness and the humility and the love to characterize our conversations? going no matter who wins this election our polarization our two our pandemics will not be resolved by just by a vaccine and a candidate <laughs> it's going to go way beyond that so those words that you just so eloquently shared are going to be our, our guidance really guidance for how we go forward after the election no matter how it turns
2: out there's one more from 1 Thessalonians 5:11 therefore Encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you were doing. Encourage one another and build each other up. That's what we're going to need to do in the United States and in the world.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So those texts should be uh, put at the end of this interview. Just, Just lay them out. Those texts provide, and as I said, Micah, about loving kindness as we do justice and walking humbly with our
1: God. I wanted to mention something about the Catholic Church. I, one of the, I, I found that I've been writing a series of books about World War II, and I found that each of the books actually is a, is a demonstration of looking at morality and, and, and religion. One of the books I wrote was called The Pope's Last Crusade, and it focuses on Pope Pius XI and a Jesuit named John Lafarge who wrote a book in 1937 called Interracial Justice, a Study of the Catholic Doctrine of race, race Relations. And he based it on his ministry in the early 1900s, working in, a, in an African-American community in Southern Maryland. And, and he said that the church, now we're talking about 100 years ago, had to take the forefront in challenging racism in the United States. And then Pope Pius XI took that concept, in the 1930s and asked Lafarge to come to Europe and say that applies to the battle against Nazism, fascism, and anti-Semitism. And it comes down to one basis that John Lafarge described and which you referred to at at the beginning of our of our conversation, which, which was there is only one race, and that is the human race. So there there are underpinnings to this that that I think are are able to teach us on how to move, move forward.
0: Indeed, and, and uh, we need more Jesuits like him. I think at the core of what, as he said so well, at the core of this is that foundation for our politics that we're created in God's image and likeness, all of us, and we're told to love our neighbors, no exceptions. Now, that's at the core of everything. Now Our religions get co-opted by ideology and and race and class and gender, all the rest. But going back to the source, as you're doing in this conversation, going back to the heart of things, uh, going deeper. I mean, I did a book called God's Politics, How the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It, (laughs) or Don't Go Left, Don't Go Right, Go Deeper. How do we go deeper here? And going deeper... Our polarization won't be solved by I, I just, let's find the middle on every issue. That's not the way it's going to be resolved. It's going to be resolved by going deeper into the things we say that we believe and that you're lifting up here from 100 years ago where where a, a Jesuit's understanding of his faith is called upon for a crisis. And you're Bonhoeffer, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung in a concentration camp came to study in this country at union seminary and while he was there went to abyssinian baptist church <laughs> he's just a white german guy bro the only white guy in the whole congregation and he learned uh, how the black church has been living this for years he learned that and what happened to him at abyssinian he took back to 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 germany and he lost his life by by being part of a confessing church that confess their faith against Nazism, anti-Semitism, and bigotry. So going deeper, I think, is the way to go forward, not just to the middle in our polarization.
2: Well, in 1 Peter, it said, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. And certainly we have had our multitude of sins, so we're going to be in need of a, a whole lot of love. As 2021 comes into focus, we're going to need to recover from this period. I hope we're going to be able to do it together. Indeed.
0: Amen to that.
2: Amen to that. Thank you, brother. This is a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.